Did you know that Thanksgiving didn't receive its permanent celebration date as the fourth Thursday until 1942? Up until then, Thanksgiving Day was left to the discretion of the president. Welcome to the Lore of the South. Follow the show on social media to keep up with what's going on and to see pics that go along with each episode. Search for Lore of the South on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Welcome back to Lore of the South with me, Kelly Cruz. How the heck are y'all doing? I know Thanksgiving's over, but we're calling this the Thanksgiving Day Special. And how was yours? We've got some good cooks in this house. Y'all want to hear the lineup? First up, we got a spatchcocked smoked turkey by producer Mike, and if you don't know what spatchcocking is, yeah, it sounds, it's a weird word, huh? Well, you cut the spine out of a bird, and then you flatten it, and then it cooks more evenly, and it's supposed to cook faster, but uh, we had a little bit of a delay with ours this year, and that was my dog, Chip. He's a butthead. Um, Then we had Great Grandma's Famous Dressing, made by my mom, and then there were the casseroles, broccoli, rice, and cheese, and my sweet potato casserole, mom's Watergate salad, my homemade cranberry sauce, yeast rolls, and for dessert, we had pumpkin pie and Texas sheath cake. You know, maybe I'll put the Texas sheath cake recipe up on the Patreon. It'd be worth three bucks a month to get that recipe. It's really good, y'all. And I think that's it. Oh, oh, deviled eggs. Can't forget those. Mmm, Thanksgiving. So worth all the work and the two days spent in the kitchen. Also, y'all might be hearing a new voice. We had a friend who was a radio DJ back in the 90s um, record some promos for us. And so maybe producer Mike might have those added into the show this time. And if he does, hey, Chris, thanks for sending those in to us. And now we're moving on to this bit of history-making news. And it has me really freaking excited, like nerding out, y'all. Prince Charles, I mean, King Charles III, I don't think I'll ever get used to that. King Charles is going to allow DNA testing on the remains of who might have been or what might have been the two princes in the tower. And I'll give y'all a brief synopsis of who those kids were, just in case you're not aware. The boys were imprisoned in the Tower of London by their uncle Richard III after the death of their father, the first York King, King Edward IV. The older brother, being heir to the throne, 12-year-old Edward, along with his younger brother, 9-year-old Prince Richard, mysteriously disappeared in the late 1400s. Then a couple hundred years go by and some renovations are taking place on the tower and the remains of two children around the same ages as the missing princes were found. They have been interred in Westminster Abbey's royal vault ever since. And for decades, scientists and historians alike have longed to be able to test the remains and see if they truly do belong to the lost princess. 
And y'all, I think I will definitely be doing a Patreon episode about the whole thing. It's a pretty wild story. And I'll be sure to keep y'all up to date as the story unfolds with the DNA testing. I'm sure they're going to have to have, there will have to be like a whole like BBC documentary done about this. Because like I said, it's been, people have been wanting to get a hold of those remains for decades to test them. And that brings us to today's episode, which we're dedicating to Native American History Month. This story has all the good historical action and a good ghost story to boot. Welcome to episode 55, Chief Osceola. Living in Florida, we have so many things named after this great Seminole chief. A county, a town, a national forest, I think a lake. Oh, and the mascot for FSU is called Osceola. Osceola was mentioned in a song by John Anderson, the song Seminole Wind, which was a hit way back in the 1990s, and I'll post a link to it in the show notes. Osceola was born in 1804 in a Muscogee Creek village called Tillisee, meaning Old Town in the Creek language. He was named Billy Powell after his father, William Powell, a Scottish trader. His mother was called Polly Coppinger and was the granddaughter of James McQueen. McQueen was a Scottish sailor and in the early 1700s, he jumped ship in the Americas and in 1716 and became a trapper and a trader. He was actually the first recorded white man to have traded with the Alabama Creek. McQueen lived out his life in Alabama and his grave is in Indian Cemetery, which is part of the Methodist Missionary Church that served or was sent to convert the native population. Polly moved she and her son to Florida in 1814 after the defeat of the Creek Nation and the Red Sticks by U.S. forces who were trying to push the tribes of the southeast west of the Mississippi River. And y'all, this was still 16 years before the Indian Removal Act. So Polly, Billy, and many members of the Muscogee Creeks escaped to Florida and joined the Seminoles. It was with the Seminoles that Billy Powell became Osceola. The name is a combination of a black drink made with holly berries and their word for shelter, which apparently Osceola was known to be quite the shouter. As a leader amongst the Seminole, he took two wives, one of which was a black woman who might have been a runaway slave. Osceola was known to have opposed slavery and equated to putting the tribes onto a reservation as a type of bondage. The Spanish seceded Florida to the U.S. in 1821, and U.S. settlers began pushing farther south into the Florida wilderness. By 1823, after many skirmishes between the Seminoles and the settlers, the settlers petitioned the government to corral the Seminole and grant more access to the land, and the government did just that by signing the Treaty of Moultrie Creek, 
which in turn made the Seminole evacuate further south into central and southern Florida. Then in 1832 comes the Treaty of Payne's Landing, aka the Treaty of Fort Gibson. The treaty promised the Seminole lands in the Indian Territory, today known as Oklahoma, in exchange for their native lands in Florida. It's said that Osceola, in a fit of rage, stabbed the treaty in protest of how his people were being treated. Osceola, along with five of the other most important chiefs, refused to sign the territory. To try to further push the leaders into signing, Indian agent Wiley Thompson then ordered the removal of these five chiefs from their positions, and then forbid the selling of weapons to the Seminole. Well, up to this point, Wiley and Osceola had been friends. So close, in fact, that in spite of the weapons ban, Wiley had gifted Osceola one of his own rifles. But once this agent took away the Seminole's rights to have weapons, it was the final straw for Osceola. In his opinion, Thompson had placed the tribes on the same level as the enslaved because they also weren't allowed to own their own weapons either. Osceola was known to barge into Thompson's office and make loud demands and generally made a nuisance of himself to the agent. On one particular occasion, Osceola took this a bit too far and Agent Wiley Thompson had had enough. He had Osceola jailed at Fort King, which is where the city of Ocala exists today, for two nights, hoping that this would calm Osceola's temper. Well, it had the opposite effect and he began to plot his revenge against his former friend and agent. December 28, 1835, Osceola and some men enter the office of Wiley Thompson. Osceola fires and kills his former friend with the rifle that he had gifted him. On the way out of the fort, six more men were killed. In a synchronized attack, another band of Seminole ambush and kill 100 soldiers on the march north from Fort Brooke. It was located in the Tampa area to Fort King. And this is what spurred on the second and deadliest Seminole War. The war lasted about seven years and went down as the costliest of all the Indian Wars, though Osceola would not live to see it to its end. In the winter of 1837, Osceola, along with 200 fellow Seminole, were captured under a flag of truce. They had been lured into a false peace negotiations by General Jessup at Fort Peyton, which was just south of St. Augustine to the disgust of not only the natives, but many of the whites as well, the 200 Seminoles were rounded up and forcibly taken to Fort Marion, formerly and currently known as the Castillo de San Marcos, in St. Augustine, Florida. They were kept in the southwest corner of the old fort and allowed daily exercise in the courtyard, 
but were never allowed to go beyond the walls of the Castillo. Osceola was already quite ill at his capture. He had been suffering from malaria since 1836. A local doctor was allowed to treat Osceola daily at the fort. Dr. Frederick Whedon became a bit obsessed with the chief, and when the Seminole were taken from Fort Marion to Fort Moultrie on Sullivan's Island just off the coast of Charleston, South Carolina, Whedon went with him. Osceola was very popular during his short stay at Fort Moultrie, all the while fighting his illnesses. He was visited by three famed painters, George Catlin, W.M. Lanning, and Robert John Curtis. Reports say that Osceola took great care with his appearance during the sittings with the artists. These paintings would be used to make engravings and were even the basis of many of the drugstore or tobacco shop wooden Indian statues. Osceola lived only three months after his capture in Florida. It's thought that the malaria had suppressed his immune system to the point of him developing tonsillitis that worsened into what was called Quincy. Quincy is where infection develops behind the tonsils and in the lining of the throat, and it causes huge pockets of pus to form. Osceola died probably from either sepsis or maybe even a blocked airway from all of the swelling and infection in his throat. He passed on January 30th, 1838. A death mask was made of the chief, and it is now housed at the New York Historical Society. This was a common practice among whites, and this was done without Osceola's or his people's permissions. But... This was only one of the first desecrations to occur to Osceola's body. Pieces of his clothing and other adornments were collected from his person for officers to keep as souvenirs. But the ultimate atrocity to the body of the great Osceola occurred at his funeral. Remember Dr. Whedon? Well, he went in to where Osceola's body had been on display and the doctor then severed the chief's head from his body, then wrapped the neck in one of the scarves that Osceola liked to wear to hide the doctor's misdeed. Whedon then snuck back into the room just before the burial and removed the head as the ultimate souvenir of his time spent with the great Osceola. Osceola's headless body was buried on the grounds of his prison at Fort Moultrie, you can still visit his grave there today. Though Osceola did not live to see the end of the war that he was one of the designers of, some of his people were forcibly relocated to Oklahoma, but many escaped into the Everglades. Those who escaped were left to their own devices because the U.S. Army finally gave up trying to defeat the Seminole. And to this day, the Seminole are known as the Unconquered.
Now back to old Dr. Whedon. This dude was twisted. There are many legends that surround him and the head of Osceola. It's said that the doctor kept the head in a huge apothecary jar full of alcohol. A few people claim to have seen it on display in Whedon's home office that also doubled as a drugstore. It's even said that he'd carry the head to bid his children goodnight and also use the head as a way to make them behave. If the kids had misbehaved during the day, he would prop the head on a dresser to watch the children as they slept. Now, I'm not 100% sure whether or not he tortured his kids with the chief's head or not, but it's a story that the ghost tour guides of St. Augustine like to tell. It's also a favorite tale of theirs to say that the headless ghost of Osceola followed the doctor back to St. Augustine and can now be seen darting around the old fort in search of his lost head. And what did become of Osceola's head? Well, the children of Dr. Whedon claim that after the doctor's death, they donated the specimen to the specimen collection of a New York surgeon, Dr. Valentine Mott, one of the most famous surgeons of his time. After Mott's death, the head and the rest of his collection went to the Medical College of the City of New York. It's there that it and all of the other human specimens were destroyed in a fire of 1866. But that's not the last tell of what happened to Osceola's remains. A hundred years pass, and a politician from Miami claims he dug up Osceola's grave in Fort Moultrie so that he could bring the legendary leader home to Florida. Park authorities claim that the man from Miami in no way dug deep enough to reach Osceola. Though, years later, Frederick's team did excavate the grave, and they found two coffins one containing a headless skeleton and one that held the remains of an infant who must have been buried around the same time as Osceola. The modern Seminole tribe is continuing to fight to bring home its past tribe members whose remains have been displayed and misplaced all over the U.S. I'm not sure if the ghost of Osceola haunts the ancient fort, but if it does, his spirit definitely was given plenty of reason to do so. If you loved what you've heard, check out the Patreon page for exclusive content by searching for The Lore of the South on Patreon.com. Side notes. Osceola wasn't an actual chief among the Seminole. Um, a Seminole chief is an inherited position, but Osceola garnered the same respect of a chief and was a leader amongst his people, and that's why I chose to refer to him as Chief Osceola. I say it as a sign of respect. Oh, and Whedon wasn't only obsessed with Osceola, he was also the Army's contracted medical officer, and it's speculated that he might have even had help from another surgeon in the removing of Osceola's head. There was like a whole head removal conspiracy afoot, y'all. I hope y'all had a wonderful Thanksgiving and that you enjoyed this episode of Lore of the South. If you really enjoyed it, consider becoming a Patreon supporter where you'll get extra episodes and other bonuses that aren't offered here on the main feed, like Texas chocolate sheath cake recipes and commercial-free episodes. Follow us on social media, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. I always post pictures to go along with each episode. 
If you want to get in contact, you can email the show at laurathesouth at gmail.com. Leave us a five-star review where you can. It helps the show to get out to more people. And if you leave a review, I'll be sure to read it on the show just like this one. Loving Laura the South. Y'all click and listen. Enjoyable and unique. Thank you so much for the kind words. Oh, and did I mention we got our first Patreon supporter? User Jude Ranch left us a great review, shared the podcast with her daughter, and joined us on Patreon. Thank you so much, Judy. And with that, we'll talk to y'all later on Laura of the South. Want to get in touch, got a show idea, or just want to say hello? Email the show at laurofthesouth at gmail.com.